everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you with an all new episode. Disclaimer on this episode, it is a twisty, confusing one. Oi. It really is. So we do have an infograph coming out, just kind of to lay out some timelines here. But it is a fascinating case, one that I had not heard of. And I had in my research trying to figure out, okay, what which case do I want to cover next? And I was looking because this episode is coming out July 4th. Happy Independence Day to all of our US listeners. Enjoying a little potato salad with your true crime. Yummy. Always a good combo. That's right. So I was looking like, oh, maybe I'll look at crimes that occurred around the 4th of July. And then somehow that led me to this case that had nothing to do with the 4th of July. But it hooked me. So here it is for you today. So before we get started, I wanted to thank everyone that has tuned in, that has reached out to us. We greatly appreciate it. And if you would like to reach out to us, of course, you can do so through our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes, our resources that we use to bring you these episodes. And of course, for this episode, the infograph might be one that you want to look at just to kind of get some clarification how things are going to break down. You can also get a hold of us through our Facebook page, our Insta page at Criminal Dispod, D-I-S-P-O-D, Twitter or YouTube. Okay, everyone, we're going to get started with this episode. This episode actually crisscrosses the country from the states of New Hampshire to California. Now, in New Hampshire, we'll focus on the town of Manchester, which is located in Hillsborough County in the southern part of the state. New Hampshire itself was established in 1629 by European settlers on land originally inhabited by the Abenaki indigenous people. California, of course, borders the Pacific Ocean along its western coast, and California's original land dwellers belong to over a hundred different indigenous tribes. But European explorers from Spain and England are the ones that named California after a mystical island populated by Amazonian warriors, which I was like, wait a minute, isn't that the premise of Wonder Woman? (laughs) So they believe that Baja California might have been the mystical Greek island depicted in Garcia Rodriguez de Montalvo's romance novel La Circus de Esplendian. I think I pronounced that correct. If I didn't, I apologize. That I thought that was excellent, Trish. Thank you. <laughs> Spanish is not my forte. <laughs> so in 2003, in Richmond, California, Lawrence William Vanner, who went by the name Larry, pleaded no contest to murdering his common-law wife, Unsen June, the previous year. Now, June had been working as a chemist for the biotech company Syntex when the pair met at a local Korean restaurant where Larry was doing some repair work. He had worked as a handyman of sorts. June also needed some carpentry work done at her home, so she had hired him. And the pair instantly connected, with June introducing Larry to her family in December of 1999. Now, June's family might have been a little unsure of Larry, but they all agreed that June seemed really to have fallen hard for the handyman. And in 2001, the couple would unofficially marry in a small backyard ceremony. So Larry soon moved into June's Richmond home, and that is when family and friends realized that they were not having as much contact with June as they did before. And by June 2002, contact was completely cut off. And whenever June's friends would call or stop by, Larry always seemed to have an answer as to why June was unavailable. 
Excuses range from June being out of town, caring for her sick mother, or checking on one of their rental properties that was also out of town, to finally her no longer wanting to be friends with her friends. This is one of those biggest red flags when we say, if you see something, say something. If someone's cutting off contact, you can't get a hold of them, oof. Go check. Well, one of her friends took that as a major red flag, and she had enough of the excuses and felt that something just wasn't right. So they went to the police about their concerns. Detective Roxanne Grunheide of the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office was assigned to the case. Now, Detective Grunheide and her partner went to the couple's home on Bernard Avenue, and they asked Larry if he'd be willing to come down to the station to answer some questions, which he did voluntarily. Now, Detective Grunheide would later describe Larry as being soft-spoken, polite, and intelligent. But his biggest problem seemed to be that he wasn't being really cooperative with them in terms of answering their questions, and he kept changing his story. Also another red flag. So in addition to those red flags, the one that finally went up is while they were at the station, the police discovered that Larry, well, he wasn't Larry Vanner at all. A fingerprint search pulled up a match to a Curtis Kimball from a child abandonment case from 1985. Now, I was unsure why they took his fingerprints because he technically was not under arrest. It wasn't very clear how that all worked out, but they did get his fingerprints. They did run a match and it was he was not Larry Vanner. So Detective Gurenheide and her partner returned to the home the couple shared. Upon searching the basement crawl space, they discovered a 250-pound pile of cat litter that stood about two feet tall and about five feet around. And they also found June's mummified remains that had been dismembered under all that kitty litter. Unsen Jun had died from blunt force trauma to her head. Larry Vanner, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, was arrested for June's murder. So in 2003, Kimball stunned a California courtroom when he stood up and pleaded guilty to murdering his common-law wife. Prior to that, he had pleaded no contest. He was sentenced to 15 years to life. Now, Detective Gruenheide felt that Kimball's sudden plea was an attempt to stop her from looking into his daughter's DNA. And she had a feeling that Lisa may not be related to Kimball. And if she wasn't, who was she? In January 1986, Gordon Jensen had been living at the Holiday Host RV Park in Scotts Valley with his daughter, Lisa, who was five at the time. Now, Catherine and Richard Decker lived in the same trailer park and had befriended Lisa, feeling for the little girl. At one point, Jensen had agreed to allow the Deckers to take Lisa to San Bernardino, California for two weeks to visit their daughter. The Deckers were trying to actually arrange for their daughter to adopt Lisa, as Jensen seemed to be looking to offload her. And it was during that trip that the Deckers came to believe that little Lisa may have been abused by her father, and they immediately notified authorities. Now, unfortunately, the Deckers were unable to finalize Lisa's adoption as Jensen had disappeared in June 1986. So Lisa was taken into protective custody and she would later be adopted, believing that Curtis Kimball was her father and that her biological mother was deceased, or at least that is what her father had always told her. So she knew him as Curtis Kimball. At this time, he was using the name Gordon Jensen. Okay. So in September 1986, 
Prints taken from the RV parked matched those of Curtis Kimball, who had been arrested back in May 1985 for a DUI in Cypress, California. Lisa had actually been in the car with Kimball at the time of his arrest. A short time later, a warrant had been put out for his arrest when he failed to appear for court over the DUI. So now we're going to fast forward to November 1988, when Gary Mockerman, is pulled over in San Luis Obispo, California, for driving a stolen car from Preston, Idaho. Another fingerprint match would show that Gary Mockerman and Gordon Jensen were, in fact, Curtis Kemble. So for whatever reason, through these mid-80s, he's using some various names. So Curtis Kimball was charged with the child abandonment and endangering the welfare of a child and sentenced to three years in prison. And he would end up serving less than two. And the day after his parole in October 1990, he would once again disappear. And no one knows where Kimball ended up, but he would reappear in June 1998 as Larry Vanner. Vanner had been stopped in California and cited for not having insurance or a driver's license, but he was not fingerprinted at that time, but they do have a record of that arrest. So a few weeks after Kimball had pleaded guilty, the paternity test results came back on Lisa, who was now in her 20s. Lisa Kimball, slash Jensen, was not biologically related to Curtis Kimball. Authorities had also come to realize that Curtis Kimball didn't seem to exist before his arrest in Cypress, California in May of 85. Detective Grunheide contacted the San Bernardino authorities and informed them that they had a living Jane Doe case on their hands. How rare is that? I would think extremely. I would hope extremely. So Detective Pete Headley of the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office was assigned to Lisa's case in 2013. It might have been in other people's hands prior to that, but he Mm -hmm. got it in 2013. Now, in 2010... Curtis Kimball would actually die of natural causes in prison after serving seven years of his 15-year sentence. So he wasn't going to be much help or talk to authorities about anything. Lisa still, though, wanted to know who she was. And she had signed up for Ancestry.com and she had gotten some hits on a fourth and fifth cousins. So Detective Headley decided to reach out to some professionals and he reached out to Barbara Ray Vanter, a genetic genealogist who began working on what they called the Lisa Project in 2015. Now, based upon Lisa's dental records, she was surmised to have been born around 1981 and assumed at this time to be around 34 years old. At Ray Venter's direction, Lisa also uploaded her DNA to 23andMe, which helped narrow down her region of origin, which is was actually the United States and Canada. So compared to the world, yes, <laughs> but still a large area. In the meantime, Detective Headley began reaching out to the cousins who had matched up with Lisa, asking them if they would be willing to submit DNA samples. And some did and some declined. And Ray Vanter also uploaded Lisa's DNA to GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA and asked the cousins if they would also be willing to upload theirs as well. And from that, she started to flesh out a family tree to find a parent or a grandparent. As more and more cousins started to be discovered, more of Lisa's tree began to fill in. And in all, Lisa had over about 200 cousin matches. That has to start feeling better from feeling lost to I have a family after all. So one day in Manchester, New Hampshire, Armand Bodin received a call from his nephew who told him he had been working with police in California on a missing persons case. He asked Armand to take a DNA test and that test would reveal that Armand 
was Lisa's maternal grandfather, which would open a door to yet another mystery. So in November 1981, Denise Bodin, who was 23 at the time, would visit her father, Armand, with her six-month-old daughter, Dawn, and her boyfriend, Robert Evans. This would be the last time Armand would see his daughter or his granddaughter. At that last Thanksgiving gathering, Denise would tell her father that she, Dawn, and Bob needed to leave town because they owed some people some money. And he wasn't sure when they were planning on leaving, but when he tried to talk with Denise about Christmas plans, he found out that the couple had left, leaving no trace of where they had gone. Denise Bowden and her daughter were never reported as missing persons. Now, Lisa finally knew who she was and where she had come from. But to this day, there is no trace of Denise. So the next mystery to figure out was, who was Bob Evans? Mm. So Detective Headley decided to send a photo of Larry Vanner, a.k.a. Gordon Jensen, a.k.a. Curtis Kimball, to the Manchester, New Hampshire Police Department. And they, in turn, showed the photo to Armand, who made a positive identification that Curtis Kimball was the man he knew as Bob Evans. So now authorities know that Bob Evans left New Hampshire in 1981, and he reappeared in March 1984 as Curtis Kimball in Los Alamos, California. Where he was in those two and a half years in between is uncertain, but what authorities do know is that in January 1986, Gordon Jensen was living with his daughter, Lisa, who we now know to be Don Bowden in the Holiday Host RV Park. So while Curtis Kimball was in California in the mid-80s, the first of two blue 55-gallon metal drums were found on November 10th, 1985, adjacent to Bear Brook State Park back in Allenstown, New Hampshire. Human remains of a 23- to 33-year-old female and a 5- to 11-year-old girl were found inside. It would be another 15 years before the second barrel would be discovered, which was only 100 yards away from the first one. This barrel was identical to the first, except the remains inside belonged to two young girls, one aged 2 to 4 and the other 1 to 3 years old. Authorities believe that all four victims died around the same time, somewhere between 1978 in 1981. Now, all four victims died of blunt force trauma to the head. In 1985, the first two victims were buried in Allenstown Cemetery with a tombstone that read, quote, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 22 to 33 and a girl aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10, 1985 in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace and God's loving care. Unquote. Now, they would become known as the Bear Brook Four or Allenstown Four, and their identities would remain a mystery until June 2017. So upon discovery of the second barrel, the first victim's remains would be exhumed for DNA testing. Authorities wanted to see if the adult remains were those of Denise Bowden, as she fit the estimated age of the victim. Now, DNA testing would be done on all of the victims with surprising results. So in the initial days of the investigation, after both barrels had been found in the early 2000s, authorities ran news articles across the U.S. and the Canadian papers in the hopes that someone would come forward with some information. That did not happen. So in June 2013, an updated version of facial recognition photos was released by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. 
And in 2014, DNA results would show that the adult female, the older child, and the youngest child were all related. Now, how they were related, they didn't know at the time. Other forensic testing showed that the woman and children had apparently lived together in the Northeast United States between two weeks and three months before their deaths. I don't know what forensic testing this was, but I was shocked that they were so like, wow, that's amazing. So authorities believe that all the victims had lived in the area where their bodies were found. So in 2017, Barbara Ray Venter was called upon once again to help find out who the Bearbrook Four were. It was determined that Don Bowden's DNA did not match the adult female from the first barrel. Don was linked to Bob Evans. Then the next step was to test Bob Evans' DNA against the four victims. So in 2017, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children announced that the middle child, the two to four-year-old, was the biological daughter of Bob Evans a.k.a. Curtis Kimball. So two of the children, the oldest and the youngest, and the adult female were all related. Yes. But the other child was related to Curtis Kimball slash Bob Evans slash all the other aliases. Yes. Okay. So through DNA profile mapping techniques, Ray Venter was able to build a family tree of the Bear Brook Four's potential killer. And it was in July 2017, DNA testing would confirm that Bob Evans' DNA belonged to Terry Rasmussen. And Terry Rasmussen was Curtis Kimball, Gordon Jensen, Gary Mockerman, Larry Vanner, and Bob Evans. Now, Terry Rasmussen, I know we just did a case recently on the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. There is no relation. So Terry Padar Rasmussen was born on December 23rd, 1943 in Colorado. Now, when Rasmussen was around nine, his family had moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Terry had dropped out of North High School after his sophomore year and enlisted in the Navy. So while in the Navy, Rasmussen was trained as an electrician. And he was discharged after seven years of service in 1967. And there is no record that I could find of any disciplinary action against him while serving in the Navy. So after the Navy, Rasmussen moved to Hawaii, where his family had relocated, and he worked in the family business, which was a shoe shop. Now, Rasmussen would go on to marry on July 20th, 1968, and the couple would move to Phoenix in 1969. Rasmussen worked as an electrician, and that same year, he would become a father to twin girls. In 1970, the family would move to Redwood, California, where Rasmussen worked as an electrician in Palo Alto. That same year, a son would be born, followed by another daughter in 1972. And it's in 1972, Rasmussen and his wife would separate, but they would reunite the following year with the family moving back to Phoenix. It was in 1973 that Rasmussen was arrested for the first time in April in Maricopa County. What those charges were were unknown. However, in June 1975, he was arrested again for aggravated assault. Right after this arrest, Rasmussen's wife and his kids would leave and divorce proceedings would begin. So I believe the aggravated assault charges were related to domestic violence and possible child abuse. In an interview in June 2017, Rasmussen's one daughter would report that her father was abusive and he would often put cigarettes out on his son's skin. It's horrific. Maybe that, yeah. 
<laughs> so that was related, <laughs> yes, to the aggravated assault charges. So in December of 1975, Rasmussen would show up unexpectedly in Payson, Arizona, with an unidentified female at his wife's home. He tells his family that he's now living in Ingleside, Texas, and this would be the last time any member of his family would ever see him or have contact with him again. In June 1978, we know that Rasmussen got a job working for Brown and Root Company in Houston, Texas. That same year, his divorce was finalized, but Rasmussen's whereabouts were unknown. What authorities now know is that in 1978, 1979, in that time range, Rasmussen was working for Wombach Mills in Manchester, New Hampshire. Only he goes by the name Bob Evans. I'm just astounded so far by how many times we've moved, how destabilized he is and how all over the place, not just the names, but from here to there and all the different people around him. Normal people can't handle that very well. So in February 1980, Evans was arrested in Manchester for writing bad check due to insufficient funds. Now, his next arrest will come in May for theft of services. Evans had apparently stolen some electricity. So in October, he would be arrested again and charged with diverting an electric current. So he he really wanted that free electricity. He's an electrician. He knows how to do it, I guess. Authorities also know from tracing Evans' history that he was working as an electrician slash handyman at a general store that was located right outside of Bear Brook State Park. The last time Evans can be found was in November 1981 when he spent Thanksgiving with his girlfriend, Denise Bowden. And after that, Bob Nevins never reappears again until he's discovered in 2017 to be Terry Rasmussen. Research librarian Rebecca Heath, who also hobbies as an amateur sleuth, got involved in trying to solve the mystery of the Bear Brook Four. Because at this point, we still don't know who these victims are. We know Bob Evans, Terry Rasmussen is connected to this, but we do not know who these victims are. And Heath would spend hours coming through online messaging boards looking for posts that fit the time frame of the age of the victims and the location of the victims. Now, one day, while searching a missing person's message board, she came across a brother looking for his half-sister, Sarah McWaters from California, who went missing in 1978, along with her mother, Marilise Honeychurch, and younger sister, Elizabeth Vaughn. Sarah's half-brother, whom she had never met, placed a message in 1999 on Ancestry.com trying to locate her. So Heath looked for death certificates matching the names, but she could find none. Next, she reached out to the family through Facebook Messenger to ask more questions. From that conversation, she was told that Marilise was last seen at a Thanksgiving 1978 family gathering, along with her then-boyfriend, Terry Rasmussen. So by this time, his name had been released as being connected to Bob Evans. So she knew, like, oh my gosh, this is this is it. These are who at least some of these victims are. And it seems while Ray Vanter was coming to the same conclusion using DNA genealogy, he discovered a connection through spending just countless hours on ancestry message boards and connecting with long lost family members. So both of these women doing two different, completely different things were coming to the same conclusion around the same time. So another amateur sleuth was Rhonda Randall and her brother, Scott Maxwell also devoted several years with trying to discover the identities of the Bear Brook Four. 
Anything of interest Randall and her brother would find, they would pass along to authorities. And it's in 2014, she had given the name Bob Evans to police two years before they made that connection. So Randall had interviewed Ed Gallagher, who was the owner of the general store located adjacent to Bear Brook State Park. She had interviewed him several times before he told her in July 2014 that he had suspicions as to who had dumped those bodies. He claimed that it was a man who worked for him in the late 70s and early 80s by the name of Bob Evans. And Gallagher went on to describe Bob Evans as being odd and very aloof and someone who never talked about his past, which... (laughs) I bet. (laughs) So on Thanksgiving Day, 1978, Marilise Elizabeth Honeychurch, age 24, brought her boyfriend, Terry Rasmussen, to her family gathering in La Punta, California. That day, Marilise had unfortunately gotten into an argument with her mother, and I'm not sure what it was about. I don't know if it was over Terry or not. And she left with her two daughters in tow, Elizabeth, who was age seven, and Sarah, 11 months. And Honeychurch and her daughters would never be seen again. So Honeychurch had married Elizabeth's father in June of 1971, and they later divorced in 74. And that same year in 74, she would marry her second daughter's father, who was in the Marines at the time. And Sarah McWaters, the younger child, was born in Hawaii Gardens, California. So at some point in their lives, both girls would be in the custody of their fathers. But Honeychurch would always later regain custody of them. So authorities piecing together Marilise's movements believe that she, Rasmussen, now going by the name Bob Evans, and her daughters relocated to Allenstown, New Hampshire that same year in 1978. Some legal documents signed after Evans' various arrests had the name Elizabeth Evans on them. And the last signature from Elizabeth Evans was signed May 1980. So she's going by her middle name now and using his made-up last name. So authorities in June 2019 would announce that three of the Bear Brook Four's identities had been discovered. And in November 2019, funeral services would be held for Honeychurch and her daughter Elizabeth with a new headstone inscribed with their names. Sarah would actually be laid to rest in Connecticut closer to her father's family. So even though this story switches back and forth to California, New Hampshire. It sounds like some of these families had family in the New Hampshire, New England states area. There remains one mystery, and that is the identity of Terry Rasmussen's biological daughter, victim number four, the two to four-year-old child. To date, no one has stepped forward claiming to be this young girl's mother. Now, through DNA testing, authorities believe that the young girl was born in Texas possibly along the Gulf Coast. And don't forget that in 1978, Rasmussen was living in Texas and for a time claimed to work on an oil rig. And in January 2021, authorities in Louisiana reached out to the public asking for their help in trying to find the identity of the unknown victim. Ray Vanter, through her work, has suggested that the mother of the child has relatives from the Pearl River County area in Mississippi, and she could be a descendant of Thomas Deadhorse Mitchell or William Livings, both born in the 1800s from that area. So they are still continuing to work on identifying this victim and and who this victim's mother is, because she may also be another victim like Denise was. Correct. And a missing person that we just don't know. 
I think that's the ultimately the saddest thing for me. I mean, the saddest thing is people dying, but the family members searching for missing loved ones on these message boards, and you're holding out hope that you're going to find them through DNA matches or family trees. And then you ultimately do find them, but you find out that they died horrifically and at the hands of someone else instead of finding your long lost relative. That's extremely sad to me. It is sad. It gives you closure, but it's still sad that that happened. Yeah, not the closure you were hoping for. Right. I know that one article I read, Marilise Honeychurch's mother, she was devastated from their argument and just felt very guilty that her daughter had cut off call contact and she didn't know what happened to her. Right. Well, and it's, I, it's still true today, but I think especially back then, there's not a lot of recourse with the police. It's an adult. And if they don't want to talk to you, that's that's what it is. You have to let them go. I think more so back then than now, you can get away with kind of picking up and reestablishing yourself somewhere else and maybe even using all those different aliases. By the way, Terry Rasmussen's nickname is the Chameleon Killer. So very fitting because he just continued to shed and, and bring out a new identity. Yeah, I don't think you could get away with something like this anymore. Even just, you know, back then it's as simple as you used cash for everything. You didn't have the DNA testing. Just very simple things that are a part of everyday transactional parts of life that would catch you. Video surveillance. There's so many ways that you would be located so much sooner. What got me on this case was not only law enforcement's effort and continues efforts to try to find out who victim number four is, but not giving up and realizing, okay, there's something not right here. Like when he pleaded guilty, that could have been it. And he died Curtis Kimball in prison. Mm -hmm. But that detective thinking, you know what, there's something more here. There's something just not right, continued to dig. And then the other detective that took over and, and the people that worked on the Lisa project, and then handing that information off to New Hampshire. Because now New Hampshire State Police realize that there's a connection with Bob Evans. They don't know where Denise is, Dawn's mom. To this day, she is considered a victim of his. And then you have these Bearbrook Four that are also connected to him and how they're still continuing to work on it. So not only their part with law enforcement, but also the amateur investigators who, you know, hats off. Mm -hmm. spending hours upon hours upon hours just trying to find the identities of these victims. Nobody should be buried unknown. That's right. Right. They had a name. They belonged to someone. There's family out there. And they worked tirelessly to figure that out. We got you now, Terry. And we got an infographic. No, well, it's not an infographic. It's the timeline. But maybe even, you know, putting all of this together in a, a way that is easy to follow. Maybe that is another resource people can use to try to find the identity of this other child. You know, just seeing it all laid out in a certain way might help somebody. Maybe there's people in Texas, because that really yeah. seems to be the area. We don't know a lot from that time frame. Just what he said where he was living in Ingleside to his family, that last communication he had with them. But also knowing that he did work possibly in that area for a time that has someone gone missing from that area. But he moved, like you said, he moved around a lot. So even if somebody had left with him who might have been pregnant but not given birth at the time. And it is interesting, too, the other aspect of that is that Lisa, that he let Lisa live. Right. You know, he has no problem clearly killing children. 
but he let Lisa live, right? Which is always you wish he was alive to ask him these questions. And and maybe it was from killing those children, he realized he couldn't do that again. And that's why he let Lisa live. I don't know. But he killed his own daughter. Feel bad for her too. imagine not knowing for sure your own date of birth. And, you know, Mm -hmm. for so long, not knowing where you were born, when, who your parents were, Mm -hmm. and not just from being orphaned or abandoned, but this, this mess. Yes. That's a burden. Yes. I guess if if you have some time off during this July 4th holiday here in America, and you don't have anything better to do, you can dig into this (laughs) and try to figure out who this other child is, at least. Yeah, we'll try to on the website, too. There is an updated composite sketch of her that was put together by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So we'll be sure to tag that. And yeah, we can always hold out hope that she will be discovered. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We greatly appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this episode or you have questions on this episode, please reach out to us. And the only thing we'd ask is whatever platform you're listening to us on to subscribe and to give us a review. That would be great. We love it. We love hearing about ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't? (laughs) Okay. So as always, if you see something, say something. You might have the missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. And I'm going to give a shout out to the Deckers. They realized that Lisa was not in a good space, that she was not, you know, well looked after by her father at that time, Gordon Jensen. And they wanted to get her into a stable environment. That's why they tried to arrange the adoption. But as soon as she started sharing with them some things that were going on with her, they immediately notified authorities. And that really started this ball rolling. Mm -hmm. You could stop someone like Terry Rasmussen before he even gets started, guys. All right. So this happy 4th of July to all of our U.S. listeners. We hope you have a wonderful Independence Day. And we'll be back with you in uh, two weeks with another all new episode. So until then, let's look out for one another. And also let's be kind to one another. All right, everybody. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.